I developed what I called my COVID-19 Leadership 7. And the Leadership 7 were be kind, be caring, be patient, be forgiving, be positive, be present, walk in the other person's shoes. And speaking crudely, as I sometimes do, at the end of it, I've said to people, what I'm really trying to tell you in four words is don't be an asshole. Hey, this is Debbie, and we're back to continue season four. And I've got some big news. The podcast has a new name, Boulder. That's a B with brackets around it. And then the word older. You might have noticed that we've been covering wider territory than gap years, so we really needed a new name, and getting bolder as you get older pretty much captures it. Plus, I love the brackets. Thanks to my producer, Julie Roxanne, for that suggestion. And as one person pointed out, you could also read the new name as be older, as in embrace it, don't resist growing older, make the most of growing older. It works either way. But don't worry, it's the same podcast as far as Apple and Spotify are concerned or wherever you listen. You don't have to change anything to listen to new episodes. So this is Debbie Weil, and you're listening to The Boulder Podcast. Today's episode is an interview with a man who was a legend in the world of business management, the one and only Tom Peters. Peters is the co-author of In Search of Excellence, which came out 40 years ago and is considered one of the most influential business books ever published. He and co-author Bob Waterman, who died very recently, say that excellent companies treat their employees with respect. They put people first. You might wonder what this has to do with the topic of the podcast. Well, Tom Peters exemplifies being bolder. As a speaker and uh, author, He's been haranguing audiences and readers all over the world for decades with his insights and his philosophy of people first. And he's not stopping even as he turns 80. Plus, he was willing to get pretty personal in this conversation. He opens up about his childhood and his mother's influence. And he talks about why he's not done yet with his people first message. And as for being bolder, Tom is as brash and opinionated and outrageous as ever. You'll hear me occasionally interrupting him or trying to interrupt him. I don't normally do that, but his wonderful assistant, Shelley Dolly, encouraged me to do so. Be sure to check out Tom's website at tompeters.com. You can read and watch much of his work there for free. And check the show notes for links to books and articles and TV shows, and even an article where he interviews me almost 15 years ago. And there's a link to his newest book, so relevant to the pandemic landscape, Excellence Now, Extreme Humanism. Let's dive in. Tom, welcome to the show. Debbie, it is a great pleasure to be here. I am speaking to you from 13 miles from New Bedford, Massachusetts, which was once when it was a whale oil capital of the planet, the richest place on earth, amazingly enough. Now, unfortunately, that's not quite the case. All right. So you're, um, or let, let me jump in. I have 
I have questions, Tom, I have questions. And I think of this is going to, we're going to get kind of personal here, but, but I know you can handle it. So, so <laughs> you are turning 80 next year. Now I realize you just turned 79, but you are turning 80 next year. Uh, what's different? What's different for you? Uh, if you got an hour. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, because we got I mean, lots, first, of, first, more, first lots of, of questions. All, first of all was when I was a young man, I was really good at math. And that means that I figured out that when you're 79, it means you finished 79th year and you're in your 80th year. So that was the biggest blow. Uh, it's a wonderful, we have a good friend, her name is a neighbor called Rebecca Eaton. And she was the woman who invented Masterpiece Theater. And she didn't really know me that well. And I've forgotten what it was that was going on. But she looked at me one time and she said, have you ever taken a day off? And that was a long discussion and we talked about my mother, but the point is that I've just kept on doing what I'm doing. And at 80, you ain't got a million years left. And I'm really troubled because I haven't, haven't developed really big hobbies. And I'm thinking of writing a memoir, but what that really means is just one more effing book, which is what I know how to do without thinking even though there's a little thought when you're writing it. So, so your timing for the question is either perfect or awful, but it's not <laughs> neutral. All right, well, hold on. I'm going to keep going. So, um, so your latest book just came out in March 2021, and it's called Excellence Now, Extreme Humanism. And you've said very publicly, it's your summa. I love that, your summa cum laude. It's your last book. It's your last hurrah. Um, why? Or, or is that not true? <laughs> There's possible chance if we had a recording of my whole life, God help us, that that may have been the seventh or eighth time I said that, but this time I really meant it. Uh, okay, that's a good well, answer. One, one, I mean, you know. One thing, Debbie, that I've said, and I really mean it, I mean, I've done a lot of research and I read like a mad person and so on. But my comment about my book is, I said, I think I said this in, in Twitter, uh, I'm a greedy person like anybody else. I'd like you to buy all 19 of my books and I'll pocket the royalties. But the real reality is I've said exactly the same thing 19 times in a row. And when the hell are you going to listen? And mm. you know, then the, the next comment that I made, which is really, you know, metaphorically, but is really true. I said, the only problem is it takes incredible intellect to understand my books. And the only way you can do it, as far as I'm concerned, is if you will present to me a signed graduation certificate from the third grade. You know? <laughs> okay, hold on. I got another question. <laughs> um, I want to go back to In Search of Excellence for a minute. Tell us the story briefly about going to the San Francisco Ballet the night before you had to give a presentation. You were a young associate, I think, in McKinsey, and you just and you saw the ballet and it was excellent. Just tell us about that briefly okay. and how that got you onto this theme of excellence. Well, I, I've got to interject before I start, which, of course, you know, is what I do. You uttered the MCK word in my presence called McKinsey. And my wife and I just 
finished watching five part dope sick about Purdue Pharma and the opioids crisis. And I think McKinsey ought to go out of business. That's my partial answer to your question. Uh, I was working on a research project about what makes organizations effective, not good strategy or what, or what have you, but what makes a place work. And at the last minute, my boss, I don't know, his computer broke down or his copy machine broke down. And he came to me and he said, you've been working on this project. I've got a meeting in Los Angeles. I was in San Francisco with Dart Industries. I want you to come down and present your findings, which meant that he had given me about 12 hours to prepare. So that night, my ex-wife and I, we were season ticket holders, went to see the San Francisco Ballet. And it was, I wish to heck I remembered what it was that we had seen, but it was a marvelous performance. And then I went home and at about 10 or 10.30, I started on the presentation. And, and I have no idea what the answer to your question is, Debbie. It was just that it kind of crossed my head and I, I'm really being far more logical than my brain must have been that night. And an organization is a group of people. Uh, a ballet is a group of people who are trying to do something, get something done, accomplish something. It's trivially easy and normal when you see a wonderful theater or balletic performance to say, wow, that was excellent. Mm. And the word flitted through my mind for some reason. And I was working on the presentation and my first piece of paper on the presentation had one word on an eight and a half by 10 sheet. And the one word was excellence. And, you know, I will do one thing. I will tell you that is not a story that I made up after the fact. I have told that story, you know, ever since the book was written. So this was not some, you know. No, that's good. Wonderful. No, I just, I just think it's. But, a great... but I don't know where the hell it came from except that. I mean, no, the, but the, I had, the point, I, 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 Debbie, yeah. let me just, I've, I've got to add what I've, what I've said to people. I, you know, Liv, you're in Maine, so you kind of are in, in New England Patriots territory. Uh, I've said to people, my favorite job in the world would be to be a housekeeper in a big hotel. And I would gather my 52 housekeepers together, which happens to be the same number of people who are on a uh, NFL team's roster. And I would say, in my mind, ladies and gentlemen, there is utterly not one iota of difference between our 52-person team who is accomplishing what we're accomplishing and the 52-person team called the Patriots. We are a group of human beings trying to work together, try to do one, trying to do wonderful things. And I see no difference at all between, you know, mm. cleaning somebody's room up and running down fake grass on a field and beating the crap out of the other people. Well, um, I, I agree. All right. Next. I just think that's a great story. So next question. Um, you, you know, you're also known for uh, this was an article published in Fast Company in 1997. The brand called you. And this was really before personal branding was a thing. And I, I remember reading that article. I was very influenced by it. Um, so now I want to talk about I just want to 
probe a little bit about your brand, your own brand. So you say, I think this is on LinkedIn, you say, um, or maybe it's on Twitter, you, the, you're in your bio, it says reader, student, people watcher, writer, speaker, Navy CB vet, a frustrated people and community first maniac who can't comprehend those who don't get it. And you also call yourself frothing, raving. These are your words, by the way. And you use the word fury. You say fury keeps me going. Um, where did, did this just sort of, that's your brand. That's your brand. And I think everybody knows that. And you know that. Did that, was that, where did that come from? Is that from your childhood? Is that from, just where does that come from? Well, it's obviously a complicated question. Uh, I'd love to have 30 seconds to talk about the good news and bad news of brand you, but maybe we can come back to that. Uh, well, I mean, it is the only reason to write a memoir because it would take 300 pages to give you a decent answer. Well, I guess I'm asking well, you really, I you mean, know, the, I, I mean, I, look, somebody, my speakers bureau, the Washington speakers bureau who handles presidents and prime ministers, the guy who runs it is a good friend. One time, a few years ago said, you do know you're the best speaker in the world. That's an insane statement. But I am a very good speaker and I have no idea where the hell it came from. Uh, I do think part of it, which is at the center of everything I said and also say, and also the last sentence in your question is, is my show me a third grade certificate. It's like I'm talking about I, I, I did I did a tweet the other day and I said something. I don't have it right in front of me. And I said, you know, the most powerful the most selfish thing in the world that you can do is to be kind to somebody because mm. in response, they will be so overwhelmingly supportive of you and so on that you will get all your damn productivity numbers and quality numbers. And so, you know, it, it just, it, why, why, I, 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 you know, I haven't read my bio lately and I think it's true. 2,700 speeches, 63 countries, 50 states, uh, 5 million miles worth of travel. Why do I have to keep doing this shit? All right, well, Why hold on, hold on, hold on. Travel 8,000 miles and say uh, people are important for Okay, Christ wait a minute, wait a minute. Tom, you're not, you're, you're, I'm interrupting. You're not That's answering my, my question. No, I know, but you're not answering my question. I'm just curious where this sort of... I don't, I don't, I don't know, know. Outrageousness came from. In high school, were you kind of an outrageous fellow? No, no, no. Okay. My, right. mo my mother was a Southern woman and I had the best manners known to humankind. Uh, I was never in the drama club or if, if I was, it was an extra, not a, not a leader. Uh, and I'm as mystified as you. It's just that because I'll keep going back to what I said, it is the content that drives me crazy. Mm, yeah, no, no, we've been saying know, it. And, yeah, people are not literally, listening. You know, there are 87 tons of data that say women are better leaders than men. Why do I have to keep talking to 90% male managerial audiences and keep saying to them? You know, that's a good question, here. Tom. Tom, that's a very good question. Yeah. Um, well, so I, I, I hear you. I just think. Um, 
I think, you know, I think it just seems like you're someone who's very true to yourself and that's the way you feel, which is furious. And, and you, that's, a, that's how you express it. Anyway, I really like yeah, it. But relative to a the lot of people really are, like it. But relative to the people who are listening to us, and this is really important. I believe that 90% of it is my passion, determination, anger at trying to transmit. I mean, people say to me, how do you be a great speaker? And my answer is always the same. The first 98% is caring about the damn material so much that you would die to get it transmitted to the people you're talking to. It is not about whether you say um or not, who gives a crap. It's not whether you're, you know, you're, tie has got a spot of custard on it it's how much you care about the people you're talking to and how you, and and your determination to transmit your passion to the people who are there and mm. all the crap about being a good speaker is 98% crap as far as i'm concerned comma because it's all irrelevant if the first part isn't there well so hold on hold on you're um I, actually, I was going to, I didn't know if I was going to ask you this or not, but there's, this is obviously, this is congruent, which is in your books, there's a lot of exclamation points and capitalization, which would not be considered sort of proper, serious business writing. And, and are you just like, what the heck? This is how I want to do it. Uh, it's just a continuation of my last or last several answers. Okay. Uh, the explanation mark is never used unless I think, listen up. You know, I mean, let's add one other thing to this. I am, and maybe it'll come across as arrogant, I am incredibly well-trained academically. Mm. I have got a PhD in organizational behavior from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And at the time they said, I wrote the very first thesis on implementation. So what I'm trying to say is, because I believe this, is I never open my mouth about one damn thing unless the research is there down in the basement. I'm yeah, not no, yelling yeah, at you no, about that's... having more women leaders because I think that's cool. I'm yelling at you because the effing research is there. But hold and on, I have like a question. It's like the kindness that... thing, for God's sakes. Yeah. You know, I, I, I get a, got a tweet yesterday and it was a woman who said I, I had stage four cancer. I had an 8% chance of living. And the whole thing that got me through was the love and compassion of my oncologist and my nurse. And there we have it. And we have it in a world now where the doctor and the nurse are graded. And if they spend more than seven minutes and nine seconds with a patient, they get a shitty grade from some frigging MBA who's running the hospital. Yeah, but hold on. You know what, Tom? I have a question about uh, women, and you just led or fell right into it, which is um, I know there's research and you do know your stuff, which, by the way, is one reason you're so influential because you've, you've got the got the street cred but on you know women women rule or should and then something else you say in the new book or you quote you say if you want something said ask a man if you want something done ask a woman personal experience um you were married to susan Sargent, who it turns out i, I went to high school with 
Um, and she's a pretty cool, pretty powerful woman. And then you mentioned your mother. And I wondered, putting, if you can, putting the research aside, is there something in your personal life that just absolutely has convinced you that uh, women rule or they should? Well, in an indirect way, and Susan is amazing. I mean, you know, this woman who started Masterpiece Theater, Rebecca Eden said, said of Susan, I've never, I've never seen anybody as extraordinary as your wife. And I believe that, but, and you don't have time for this. It is my mother. Uh, that's the first 98%. I was around a powerful woman. Now she did not lead a company. We didn't have much money. I went to a little local private school in order to pay for it. She had to become, she had to go to work and she became a fifth grade teacher. And, and you know, Debbie, I, I just have to take the 45 seconds. In 2005, we had a memorial service for my mother and I spoke and obviously I'm an incredible speaker. So I said wonderful things. The best 99% was after the speech, I'm tearing up. I wish we were on video. After the speech, a dozen or more of my mother's former fifth grade students who were probably in their 40s by then, maybe even older, came up to me with tears in their eyes and said, my year with your mother was the most important year of my life. I mean, I'm, I can't even make it through telling you about it in 2021. I couldn't make it through 2005 listening to it. She was just a powerful force on earth and she really cared. Mm. Wow. Wow. That's, thank you. Thank you for there, that. There's a, a, there's a, there's a slightly nastier side to it as well, but, and that was a, a kind of a grudge that she had. And since I was an only child, you know, I said, if you want to know my mother, she's consistent with the way parents are acting today. The parents come in today, their kid got a B and the parents say, we'll sue unless you give my kid an A. My mother would have come in and said to the fifth grade teacher, he spent damn little time on that essay and you gave him an A, take it down to a B now. <laughs> I like I that. Well, you know, this, it, but, but, but you know, facto, the story. I don't know if you've ever been to therapy, but oh man, this just yes. all fits together. Your mother, the excellence, you know, her ideas about excellence. I oh, gosh, I really, I really like it. How has the pandemic affected your day-to-day -day life? Are you secretly a hermit and you don't mind holding up there in your beautiful, colorful house? Um, that Susan has, it just sounds so cool. I think I might've seen pictures of it. What, can you give us a little insight into that for you personally? Uh, well, the storyline, and then we can add twists, but I think the storyline is, is true. Uh, Susan was, went to Sweden, spent four years in Sweden. She's a tapestry artist who then went on and had her home furnishings company and so on. Uh, but needless to say, you're good with your hands and good with fabric. She, like large numbers of other people, uh, were churning out masks like nobody's business at the beginning of all this. 
And I don't know whether it was a flash one day or occurred slowly. I said to myself at some point, there is your wife 75 yards away in her studio doing this wonderful thing. And you're supposed to be some kind of a hot shit and you're just sitting on your ass. And so my colleague, Shelly Dolly, who lives in Maine and is in Maine as you are, I called Shelly and I said, you know, we've talked to a lot of people uh, and this was incredibly arrogant, uh, but I said, we've talked to a lot of people over the years. I want you to see if you can, you know, I want to talk to people about leading in the times of COVID-19. And so we ended up doing 54 podcasts and it was just a simple message. I've got it. I don't know. Do you have a copy of my book at hand? Uh, unfortunately, right now it's only on Kindle, but I just can't wait to get hold of a. No, there's no, no, there's a, there's a. I've, I don't want to waste your time, but there's something that's early in the book that I have got to read to you. And of course, we'll have a link to the book. Don't worry, in the show notes. Yeah. Um, damn it. This is killing. Oh, yeah, there it is. God, it's on the first page. Uh, I developed what I called my COVID-19 Leadership 7. And the Leadership 7 were be kind, be caring, be patient, be forgiving, be positive, be present, walk in the other person's shoes. And speaking crudely, as I sometimes do, at the end of it, I've said to people, what I'm really trying to tell you in four words is don't be an asshole. You know, be <laughs> decent, be thoughtful, be caring. My, the little example that, that I give is I'm a boss and I'm having Zoom meetings you know, with my group four times a week or something. And there is Nancy Smith or David Jones, who has made every meeting, who is always on time, et cetera. And at some point, maybe a quarterly evaluation, I go up to Nancy or Dave and I said, listen, I have one problem with you. you know, I assume the boss knows everything about the people that report to her or him. And I don't mean in some intrusive way. And I say, look, I happen to know that your mother you know, is in an assisted living place. I know you've got two kids who are scrambling and you're scrambling to help them from home. And, you know, Nancy, please be late for some meetings. You know, oh. productivity is not our goal, number one. And I would say with a smile on my face, I'm giving you a slightly bad grade because you were on time all the time. And, you know, you understand what I'm saying. I'm sure 99% of the people who are listening to us do. But it's, uh, you know, be kind, be thoughtful, be caring. Uh, and so, don't be an asshole. You know, and, we, it, it, and, and what, you know, back to some earlier stuff you were saying to me. Uh, and this is really important and surprised me. I thought there would be, you know, I am known for being energetic, blah, blah, blah. I thought there would be a dramatic reduction in the ability to transmit emotion via Zoom. And my strong conclusion, at least for me, is absolutely positively not true. And so I have felt that whatever it is I do, I've been able to do it 
you know, I hate to say as well, it's an arrogant term, but uh, be able to do it as well, you know, looking at the screen of my iPad as I could. And, and my, and Susan has said it. She said, my God, she, you know, when, when I finish a speech, I'm physically ill because I'm, I'm so exhausted. And mm. she said, you are just precisely as exhausted after an hour Zoom as you were after an hour speaking to a thousand people in an auditorium in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And, I, mm. and it's true. So, Tom, you know, it, it seems as if or this is I don't know, I'm sort of this is a hypothesis that in a way the pandemic has brought to the fore or made more visible or just more accepted by everyone, you know, some really key pieces of your philosophy, you know, people first, for example. I mean, is that possible that this pandemic, which none of us could ever have predicted? Well, maybe not, but has made your message well clearer, I'm, easier to understand? I'm Yes. Uh, and I've had this discussion many times, as I'm sure you have. I am keeping my fingers crossed. I am going to mass eight days a week, hoping that this stuff will stick. But yes, I think it has made a significant difference, with exceptions like Jeff Bezos, who did who talked to his goddamn spaceship people instead of you know getting the hell out to the location of the tornado. Don't get me started on that. But the, the, the practical answer is, is uh, I think maybe it will have waked a lot of people up and maybe particularly younger people who are near the closer to the beginning of their career, let's say 38 or younger, what have you, who don't quite have all the bad habits that a lot of 45 year old in particular bosses seem to have. Mm. I got a, a question here. It kind of goes back to my first question. Uh, about turning 80 and um, are you going you can't let that go can you Debbie what what the oh well I listen I just turned <laughs> 70s just I just turned 70s which is so I have age, uh, you know, God, old I, can't age. Even, I can't even count backwards that far Susan, <laughs> well of course of course Susan is exactly the same age I know we I know together wait hold on so here's my question are you going gently into that good night that's Dylan Thomas's poem or are you sort of railing against being in, I don't know what you want to call it, the twilight, the last stages of your, of your career? And I, I think you no, I don't, hit, I don't hit think it in an answer. I don't think that frames it right. Okay. You, I you, don't you, correct necessarily me. have any desire to go quietly, but it's not a function of, I mean, I, and Susan has said this when she's seen the Zoom stuff. Well, it's the it's the same it's this boring message of our conversation it's the passion for the ideas uh, you know speaking of you and susan i think it was at some point right after my 70th birthday i was somewhere rather giving a speech and a guy came up to me afterwards and he said god he said i'm only 42 but i can't wait to be 70 if I can be energetic like you are at 70. Oh, uh, I love yeah, it. Wanna, but the, the only, <laughs> Debbie, since you started it with the quote, though you didn't introduce the quote, the, the quote of, if you want to get something done, ask a woman is from Margaret Thatcher. 
And I once spoke at the same event that Mrs. That that Prime Minister Dame Thatcher spoke at. And it was one of those places where there's a ramp that you come off and on the audience uh, off the stage. And I was coming back and she was coming onto the stage and she just looked at me and she said, my God, you would have been one dangerous politician. And I loved it. You know, I still am carrying it around. Not entirely sure what it means, but I think what it means is the ability to maybe influence people. But I haven't influenced enough people. Well, that's a, quite a compliment. All right. What is, um, what is one non-obvious question that I've forgotten to ask you? Well, you've given me the opening for one non-obvious thing I want to say and really shove down the throats. And I know it's not primary. Uh, it's not a business audience, you said, but I mean, I, I don't even know what the hell that means. We all work in organizations. Right. I no, I agree. Absolutely I Absolutely no difference between a food. Obviously, I do in terms of the quality of the work, but in terms of how you spend your day. Well, it's, you know, it's my comment before a housekeeping department's the same damn thing as the New England Patriots. But here, here's, here's my point. You know, the, I worked with a wonderful designer by the name of Nancy Green on the last book, and I had used the term humanistic and she hated it. And she said the term is humanism. And she really, hammered on it but i want to just i want to either use one or two examples uh i was and this is back to also hard research um i i i think i can tell it so it's not hard to follow um debbie weil goes in for a cat scan you're in the room, the tech is there, and she or he turns to you and said, you know, just for our records, uh, I want to take a, you know, iPhone photo of you to attach to the records. Is that okay? And you say, yeah, that's okay. So the tech is in the room with you and the radiologist who reads the thing maybe next door and maybe in Mumbai. It isn't clear. Uh, the data from the CAT scan is transmitted to Mumbai or next door in Boston. Uh, and the person makes the diagnosis. And there is a term called anomalies. And anomalies means little surprises. And they're the most important part of the whole thing. So the radiologist goes through and identifies these anomalies. And the fo- the data he was looking at started with a photograph of Debbie Weil. Okay. Uh, As this hard-nosed experiment goes, uh, about a month later, uh, a radiologist was sent a whole bunch of data. And what he didn't know or remember, nobody would with just ones and zeros, he was also He got Debbie Wiles data again. He got those results. He, the whole important thing now, the whole important thing is finding the anomalies. If Debbie Wiles' picture was not there, he found 80, 80, 80, 80% less anomalies. They did the research on this. The fact that that little damn photo showed up for 15 seconds at the beginning of a radiologist who has a PhD and Christ only knows what 
the fact that he saw that picture and they measured the empathy, they measured this, they did stuff uh, uh, by seeing this silly, stupid little picture for three and a half seconds, the whole world turned upside down. Why do I have to preach that people are important and being human is being human is important? I mean, it's, you know, I just, I love that research. I just adore mm. that research. Wow. Yes. Isn't that, I mean, isn't that, that incredible? Yeah, that's, that's mind-blowing. 80%, Debbie. It's not like, you know, I'm talking to a group of businessmen, all of whom graduated from business school, and I'm saying, well, there was a 17 and a quarter percent difference, which was statistically significant at the 0.95 level. No, it was 80% less stuff that was the most important thing that the person less that they found if they didn't see your picture first. And, mm. you know, and your picture again, I, I, I don't, maybe I didn't read closely enough. It couldn't have popped up for more than 10 seconds. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm married to a retired physician. So that rings very, very very true to me. Um, he's a, he's a humanist, I think as well. Um, Tom, my favorite, my favorite book in maybe years is a wonderful book that came out by two brutally tough researchers who are MDs. And the book is called compassionomics. It's a wonderful mm -hmm. term. It's a horrible term, but it means MBAs will understand it because it's got the nomics in it. Mm. And it is the it is the measurable power of compassion. And one thing that I know your husband would understand, and they, you know, they've got this quantitatively to the third decimal point. If the doctor makes 37 seconds of uninterrupted direct eye-to-eye -eye contact with the patient hospitalization stay goes down by something like 30%. Complications go down by 30%. It's just, it's just stunning stuff. Mm. Of course, the problem is that the hospitals that are run by MBAs want you to stay in the hospital so they can make more money, which is to say that there was an article and there is an article in today's Boston Globe that says at a wonderful hospital, Brigham and women, there are not enough beds for very sick people. But the tummy tuck surgery continues at full speed. Oh, Why? God. The margins are higher. Oh, yeah. No, y'all got it. You know what? Speaking of books and reading, I, I forgot to ask you a question here. Um, tell us what's the most influential book you've read or a couple titles, but just what comes to mind. You mean it, you mean ever? I mean, sure. I, know the ever, I know the ever answer. All right, the ever, and it doesn't have to be a business book, but just I'm just well, curious. it wasn't a business book. It's written by a, a social psychologist by the name of Carl White, who was, I think, at the University of Minnesota, and it is called the Social Psychology of Organizing. Um, I sent it to him as a present when he had his 70th or 80th birthday, because literally half of the pages are bent over. The entire book has. Uh, you know, is honest to God, it's 80% highlighted or underlined. You can't even read the book because there's so many notes on it. That was by far, it gave me this entirely different. I mean, again, I'm, I'm walking into Stanford with two engineering degrees from Cornell, for God's sake. I'm a quants quant. 
And, and this just gave me a perspective from a hard-nosed researcher, no bullshit, of just the intricacy and the fascination of, of, of human organization. So that was the, you know, that was by far number one. It's about a 90-page book, for heaven's sakes. It's very dense and academic, but, um, <laughs> but fantastic. Well, I'll make sure we put that in the show notes. Um, and, he, you know, here's the last question, which actually I meant to ask you earlier, but why, wh where does your emphasis on reading come from? Reading as a way to succeed in business. Is it related to, that's how you know how to ask the right questions? Well, or? Two, I'll, I'll say three things. Partially, one is a repeat of a couple of earlier answers. Uh, my mother tended to occasionally exaggerate, but in something she wrote, she said she had me reading history by the age of three, which sounds a little bit of a stretch. Uh, but, you know, I was, a, I was a slow walker and a fast reader. That was the case. So I had books, history books in particular, I grew up in Maryland. She was a not about Maryland history, which doesn't really matter. Uh, but the the reading goes back at least to the age of four, uh, you know, and it's never stopped. But I want to add just one thing to that. We had a neighbor and he was a big deal investment banker, probably a jillionaire. And I was at dinner with him one time. I think it's the only time I've sat, did sit next to him at dinner. And God knows what we were talking about. But he looked at me and he said, do you know what, said, Tom, do you know what the number one problem with big company chief executives is? And I, being a smart ass by disposition, said, well, I can name 50, but I'm not sure I could pick number one. Well, he wasn't in a funny mood. And he looked at me and he said, they don't read enough. I mean, it was just one sentence that popped. You could have knocked me over with that virtue, you know, with that feather. And incidentally, uh, God, what's his name? I can't remember now. Warren Buffett's number two said that Buffett's biggest secret is reading. Mm -hmm. Now, I think it applies to any job at any level, anywhere, uh, without any question. But, you know, the, the reading is life and the and the rest is details. I can tell you one funny story about it. Wait, well, hold on. But Tom, do you agree? You agree with your, your dinner companion? Hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Okay. Hundred percent. No question. No question about it. And if it's possible, well, I won't say it's more important than ever. I say it's more important than ever because of the technology and artificial intelligence. But that's crap. Uh, you know, I argue that the most important thing you can read as a good leader is good fiction. Uh, you know, you want, you want good leadership skills, read Dickens from cover to cover every book that he wrote and 10 other people like that, because fiction is, I mean, what's it about? Even cheesy fiction is about the intricacies of human relationships. Wait, do you have about, a favorite, do you have a favorite fiction author? Uh, no, mm -hmm. they've, you know, they've changed over time right now i'm reading the the wonderful australian officer uh thomas keneally i mm. think that's the right pronunciation but uh no i i can't give you a i can't pick one out 
Wait, here's an aside because you mentioned Dope Sick, which I also watched. Oh, about were, um, you, were you blown away? I was blown away. Have you read Empire of Pain? No, no, I should have and haven't. It's will blow you away. It's yeah. it's narrative nonfiction. It reads like a thriller. It's by Patrick Radden Keefe, if I've got the name right. And it's about the Sacklers and the yeah, well, you, crisis. You will do the trick, Debbie. You'll push me over. I should have. I should have. I should. Well, I it's fun. Well, it's I fun. did. I, the only thing I read in the book was I downloaded it on my uh, iBook and I checked to see how many times McKinsey's name was mentioned in the book. <laughs> and it was a jillion times. Okay. All right. So listen, I'm, I'm um, pissed about what? that. You oh, know, I am. Yeah, I am too. It's I mean, appalling. I, you know, appalling. I was, there's yeah. a guy. There's a guy by the name of Duff McDonald, who's a brilliant researcher. He wrote a book about McKinsey. Wrote one book about the Harvard Business School. One book about McKinsey called The Firm. And he said I was their most prominent alumnus. Mm. I mean, Jesus. I hope you know. I'm I'm taking the damn McKinsey off of my CV for Christ's sakes. Mm. Listen, I think we we're gonna we're gonna ring off because this is. Tom, this is amazing. We could go on all day, but I want to give you a little bit of time to possibly, if not take the whole day off, take part of the day off. I think you said in the beginning, you've never taken a day off. Um, because I think that's, we've learned that from the pandemic. It's good to have a little more life balance in our work well, life. Well, there's a, anyway. this guy who I said wrote the book about McKinsey, which was called The Firm, and I've forgotten what the title of his Harvard Business School book was he's just written the book that I just got a hold of and it's called Tickled, T-I-C-K-L-E-D. And he had a book that he wanted to write at the beginning of the pandemic. And he said exactly what I said to you at the beginning of our conversation. He said he sat down to write it and he thought, maybe this is the wrong book. And he did write a book, but it was about how his feelings emerged uh, during the pandemic. And I'm only about 20 pages into it. But yes, I agree with you. Mm. I just want to end by saying that I really, really liked your newest book, Extreme Humanism. I think it might it might be your best book, although I can't be the ultimate judge, but I just want to thank you. Thank you for it. Well, that's your you're very kind. You might have noticed we did not brag about it. There are something like 10 or 12 endorsements in the front, and there is a dedication to a dozen people and all dozen of those people are women and all of the endorsements that I used are from women. I am really, really serious about these women's issues. Well, I, um, <laughs> I applaud that Tom. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was amazing beyond amazing. Well, Debbie, you, you, uh, you broke the record. You said, you know, I should talk to a counselor. Well, I think I just did for an hour. You, uh, you got your, you got your full scale. Your husband's not the only MD in the family. Oh. You got your, you got your psychiatric degree hiding back there. You're, you are a uh, full scale shrink. Oh, Tom, thank you. And that's it for this episode of the Boulder Podcast. If you like what you're listening to. Help us spread the word. Tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts and email us at theboulderpodcast at gmail.com. Till next time, I'm Debbie Weil.